Christmas in 2019 was a very different experience than Christmas in 2020 in our household. And it wasn't just because of the pandemic. You see, in 2019, our daughter Amelia was just eight months old. So this was her first Christmas. And we were so excited to buy her little presents and wrap them up and put them under the tree. And we had visions of her coming down on Christmas morning and unwrapping the presents and taking the toys outside and just playing happily with her new toys for the rest of the morning. But of course, it didn't quite happen like that because Amelia had not yet been taught what to do with a gift. When we handed her that first present wrapped beautifully in reindeer wrapping paper, she just kind of took it and stared at us blankly. And she just kind of pushed it around for a bit, didn't open it, and then got bored and picked up one of her old toys and started playing with that. We then unwrapped the toys for her, but to be honest, she took far more interest in playing with the torn pieces of wrapping paper than she did with any of her new toys inside. Fast forward 12 months and Amelia's wee eyes lit up as we took a present out from under the tree and gave it to her. She, she said, ooh, present and new toy. And then she tore off the wrapping paper and started looking at the present inside. Now, I have to say she still got as much enjoyment out of the cardboard boxes as she did with the new toys. But basically, in 12 months, she had learned what to do with a gift. She understood that gifts are to be opened and used and enjoyed. It's not just about the moment of receiving, as wonderful as that is, it's about what comes next. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at a New Testament letter written by Jesus' disciple Peter. It's a fatherly letter to spiritual children. And in the verses we're going to look at today, Peter wants to make sure that his readers know what to do with the gift that they have received from God. He doesn't want you to be the spiritual equivalent of an eight-month-old child, unsure how to respond when you've been given a wonderful gift. Peter's going to tell us what our response should be. We're looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. I'm actually going to start reading a couple of verses earlier just to give us some crucial context. So starting at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these things is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Peter starts his letter by talking about the gift that Christians have received from God. Salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. No Christian has earned their salvation. No one deserves it. But we've received it freely through Jesus. Luke spoke about that two weeks ago. And God doesn't stop there. He also gives us the equally free gift of his power through the Holy Spirit. And Dan looked at that just last week. Everything that Peter goes on to say in verses 5 to 11, our passage today, is about what the Christian life should look like as a result of these gifts. And the first point I want to make is that this godly living is founded on faith. It is dependent on it. Peter doesn't say that you must make every effort to have faith because saving faith is a gift from God. Perhaps a clearer translation of verses 5 to 7 would be, in your faith, you should make every effort to supply virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. Faith in Jesus underpins and holds together all of the seven godly characteristics that follow. It's only from that place of faith that we can then bring anything of our own effort. Faith is the precondition of living in a way that honors God. And in these verses, Peter assumes that his readers have faith. Therefore, if you haven't yet received the gift of salvation by putting your faith in Jesus, our passage today is of little value to you. Christianity is not just about living in the right way, because you can never do that in your own strength. You can only do it having received God's gift of salvation and having received his power through the Holy Spirit. Effort, as we'll see, is good and important, but it is secondary. Effort alone will get you nowhere. So if you're not yet a Christian, the only way that you can be right with God is to put your faith in Jesus to forgive your sins and give you a new life of complete acceptance before God. Only then can you begin to live in the way that Peter goes on to describe. You can receive God's gift today. There's nothing more important than that. Once you've received God's free gift, the question becomes, what now? Well, having told us that faith, which makes us right with God, is a gift, Peter goes on to say that our personal and private Faith in Jesus, if it's authentic, will always work itself out in public and practical ways. As the great reformer Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the, safe, the faith that saves is never alone. Real faith gives birth to godly living. And godly living requires effort. Peter urges us to make every effort to live in a godly way. Not as a way of earning God's favour, 
but as a grateful response to already having received it. As the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to Titus, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. When you receive God's gift of salvation through faith, God declares you righteous. And he's never going to change his mind on that. Theologians call that justification. You have been, past tense, justified. God also promises that we are being, present tense, transformed day by day into the likeness of his son, Jesus. This is what theologians would call sanctification. Sanctification is a process that God works within you, but he invites you to participate. And this is where your effort comes in. We're to partner with God, obeying him and seeking to live according to his word. We say no to ungodliness and we put to death sinful habits because we want to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. These, these phrases, these are, these are active things that we are meant to do. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit within us, but they do require exertion from us. Just over two years ago, my wife and I were lucky enough to buy a house. And one exciting thing about that house is that it came with a garden. Now, neither of us had ever owned a garden before, so we just felt really blessed that it was suddenly ours. And we dreamed of Amelia, our daughter, running around in the garden and of long summer evenings where Jen and I would just be lounging on the lawn, drinking a glass of wine, surrounded by birds and flowers. The only problem was that the garden looked like this. Our enjoyment of the garden was severely hampered by huge overgrown trees, endless weeds, rubbish, broken glass, you name it. Our possession of the garden was never in question. There was work to be done for it to become the garden that we wanted it to be. I had to set to and clear the land, it has to be said with a lot of help from friends. I had to pull out weeds over and over again. I had to dig the earth over and make it level. And it wasn't easy, but the effort was so worth it. Because as I did the simple work of clearing space, sowing some grass seed and planting some plants, growth came. I didn't make things grow because I can't do that. Only God can make things grow and bloom. But... I played my part in cultivating the ground and making space for God to do his work. Our garden is still a work in progress and it's going to require ongoing work, but it is transformed beyond all recognition. You know, God has saved you and me for a purpose. He wants to make something beautiful out of our lives. He wants to transform us so that we can be the light of the world, a city on a hill, so that through us God might bring his healing and hope and restoration to a world that's broken and in pain, now more than ever. It's a glorious thing he's called us into. Let's make every effort to partner with God so that our character might reflect his character more and more every day.
Godly living requires effort. Now let's look in a bit more detail at what we're aiming at. What does godly living actually look like? Peter mentions seven qualities that we are to cultivate. These aren't stages of holiness like the levels on a video game. You don't complete one and then start work on the next. Rather, together they represent a rounded Christian life. Seven uh, in the Bible is the number of completeness. So the idea is that these virtues, these qualities, uh, when they're put together, they represent the ideal Christian life, starting with virtue and culminating in love. So the first one, virtue, is another word for moral goodness or excellence. And I don't know if you've noticed, but our society is obsessed with virtue. The unvirtuous are either cancelled or they're labelled fake. The problem is that there are competing versions of what constitutes being virtuous. The great comfort for Christians in this confusing world is that we know that Jesus is the epitome of goodness and we're to imitate him. Next we have knowledge. The word used for knowledge here refers to being informed. In this case, being informed about Jesus and his teachings. It's the kind of learned knowledge that we acquire over time through reading and discussing with other believers and thinking. And in our society, we are bombarded with information all the time, aren't we? How much time do you devote to learning information about Jesus and what pleases him? You might want to think about how you can be making decisions to immerse yourself in knowledge that will do you good. There are tons of great Christian resources out there from books to podcasts to training courses. But regularly reading the Bible and regularly attending a small group and discussing things with other believers there are two great places to start. Let's be hungry to deepen our knowledge of Jesus. Self-control is the next quality on the list. This is about being able to navigate temptation. It's about making good decisions about what you consume, whether that's food or alcohol or the television you watch. It's about how you spend your time on the internet. It's about how you spend money. Self-control means not allowing the material things to dominate your life. Lockdown has made life incredibly busy for some and incredibly boring for other. And both of these situations bring temptations. Don't give up the fight against sin in your life. And make sure that you talk to trusted Christian friends who can get alongside you in the fight. Next is steadfastness. It is the ability to endure the difficulties and problems of this life with perseverance because of the promise of eternity to come. James 1, 2-4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. For most of us, we are in a season that requires bucket loads of steadfastness. I don't know about you, but my endurance has been and continues to be tested. It doesn't feel like a very joyful experience. Yet James tells us here that we can count it as all 
joy. Because as we do our best to persevere through adversity, God grows us and promises that it will lead to good fruit in our lives. What a promise that even the pandemic God can use to produce good fruit in your life. The next quality is godliness. Godliness is practical awareness of God in every part of your life. It's living your life as worship to God. It's developing your prayer life. It's being devoted to him. And then just in case we make the mistake of thinking that godly living is just about me and my private relationship with Jesus, Peter reminds us that we are also to display brotherly affection. If we love Jesus, we must also love our brothers and sisters in Christ, the church. 1 John 5 verse 1 says that our love for the church is proof that we have been born of God. We're family together. I read this week that the New Testament is the only place in the ancient world where this phrase brotherly affection has been found to be used outside of the context of a home. So when Peter calls his fellow Christians my brothers and sisters, he really means it. Is this how you act towards your fellow Christians? Jen and I have been so impacted by acts of love toward us by people in this church over the past few months. And when Christians care and look out for one another, it's such an amazing, powerful reminder of the goodness of the God who unites us together. Don't wait for somebody else to act in this way towards you. Take the initiative. Go out of your way to show love towards someone else in church. And in this time when we are isolated from one another, you may well have to be creative in showing that love, but the impact will be powerful. Give someone a call or drop around a meal or sweep the snow off their front step, whatever it is. Go out your way to show love. Peter's list culminates in another kind of love. Not just love for brothers and sisters, but for those outside the church too. In Greek, it's agape, indiscriminate, sacrificial, unconditional love that expects nothing in return. It's the sort of love that Jesus showed for us when he laid down his life for us. Indeed, this whole list represents nothing less than a description of the character of Jesus. He is the only person who has ever lived out these qualities perfectly. You might be sitting there thinking, man, I, I fall way short of pretty much every item on that list. Well, here's some good news. Look at what Peter says in verse 8. What matters is that you are increasing. Godly living is about growth, regardless of your starting place. God requires our effort, but he does not demand our perfection. What matters is not that we miss the mark from time to time or that we struggle in this area or that, but it's that we do not give up making every effort to grow. The surest sign that your faith is real is that you are growing. I'm not talking about this week or just this month, but over a period of many years, the Christian will grow in the qualities that Peter lists. In the short term, we can all fluctuate, particularly in times like this when our circumstances are changing so much. 
but the overall trajectory is becoming more and more like Jesus. If you can think back to moments in your Christian life and think, what was I doing? How could I have been so foolish? That's great news. It means that you are growing. When we increase in these qualities, Peter says it prevents us from becoming unfruitful and ineffective. You want to be more fruitful and effective as a Christian? I know I do. Then practice these qualities. There may be times when you feel like you're not making much progress. And when that happens, remind yourself of God's promise to you that he will complete the work that he has started in you. And then renew your efforts to partner with him in that work. Transformation won't happen overnight, but it will happen. The theologian Eugene Peterson called the Christian life long obedience in the same direction. And that brings me to my final point. Godly living requires perseverance to the end. In verse 11, Peter reminds us to keep our eyes on the prize which is eternity with Jesus in a world that's been remade. When we lose sight of our future hope, we can become short-sighted, as he says in verse 9, and become blinded by the cares or the fleeting pleasures of this world. Peter urges us to have clear vision, remembering that Christ has saved us and will one day welcome us into eternity with him. Until that day, persevere. And never give up striving to live a life worthy of your calling. Peter uses a curious phrase in verse 10 that we are to be diligent in confirming our calling and election. That's not to say that we earn our calling and election by good works. Remember what we talked about at the beginning. God saves us by grace. I think what he's getting at here is that as we grow in the Christ-like virtues over a lifetime, we also grow in confidence in our calling and it reminds us that we belong to God and will be with him forever. The Scottish sprinter Eric Liddell who's the um, hero of the film Chariots of Fire and he won the gold medal in the 1924 Paris Olympics in the 400 meters. He was asked what his secret to success was and he said well I run the first 200 meters as fast as I can. Then, for the second 200 meters, with God's help, I run faster. What a great picture of the Christian life. No matter how close you might be to the finish line, never slow down in your pursuit of God. Run your race to the end and receive the reward of entering the eternal kingdom of your Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I'd love you to respond to what God's saying to you just now. If you know you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus and received his free gift of salvation, you can do that today. Turn to God, repent of your sin and ask him to give you new life. I'd love to speak to you about that. And you can email me right now at the email address on screen, chris at kingschurchedinburgh.org. And if you're a Christian, I want to remind you that your standing before God never changes. And he's given you the power to live a life that reflects that new status. 
Now, determine to make every effort to partner with God as he makes you more and more like Jesus. God might be putting his finger on some things in your life that you need to change. He might be asking you to make a difficult choice about the way you spend your time or money. He loves you. And he doesn't want anything to hold you back from a life of fruitfulness and effectiveness in his service. Don't settle for anything less. 